Welcome to the podcast, Gary. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me at your beautiful place. The sanctuary. <laughs> it is. It does feel like that. <laughs> the camera should be looking that way. <laughs> I, know, I know, yeah. It's beautiful, beautiful spot you got here. Um, I'm fascinated by, at the moment, the, the expansion, like how much we can expand our state of consciousness in our lifetime. <laughs> mm. And I'm particularly fascinated by talking more and more about what one's inner reality is like. Mm. And you're someone that I, I think I did our around and retreat maybe four years ago. I think it was about four years ago. Mm-hmm. And just magnificent. <laughs> mm. This gooey, yummy, unraveling of self. Um, and yeah, just absolutely cherished it. So I, I would just, I think it might be a big, broad question, but take it however you feel. Mm. Is what is your inner reality <laughs> like right now? How, do you, how would you describe yeah. what it feels like inside yourself? That's an interesting question. It's something that um, traditionally people having experiences have, have kind of avoided. Right. Desperately avoided. Like my teacher for years <laughs> would, wouldn't give away much at all. <laughs> and I can never quite figure out why. And even within... You know, you know, Maharishi circles, it was very similar. Like, we don't talk about our experiences. We don't talk about our experiences. Right. And then you look at Yogananda, for example, in his autobiography of Yogi, he had to seek permission from the divine first to share what he was experiencing, you know, his, his state of holy communion. Um, and he said he received a confirmation. But prior to that, there had never been a, a yogi who had really divulged, like, all of the, the you know, that, that sacred union. Yeah. And all of the, you know, their personal intimacies. So, um, I think maybe it's important for seekers to know, like, is there a state other than the state I'm in that's attainable? And, and what is that like? And I think the reason it's not shared a lot of the time is because, um, it can seem a little bit overwhelming for others or they can misconstrued or they can understand that that personal experience that person's having, I have to, you know, they go in pursuit of that and chase that and then they have dissatisfaction and they have these crazy expectations. So I can't remember who it was. Um, some spiritual teacher said that enlightenment is the ego's greatest disappointment. <laughs> because there's these ideas that, oh, it's going to be this. And then, you, you know, you get there, it's like, oh. Uh, so I think the problem with being someone who's on that journey of awakening is you normalize it every step of the way. Right. And I don't know, it's very rare for me to know that what does it feel like to be stressed and miserable? And it's not until I maybe get around other people who are really struggling or maybe stuff happens and I get thrown out of balance or whatever. And I'm like, what's this feel like? Oh, these are stress hormones. Or this is like what anxiety feels like, you know, building soma. I, I never really had much anxiety in my life. I didn't really, and I work with a lot of people who, who obviously have it and I've kind of become somewhat an expert with that condition. But me personally experiencing it with myself is not something I was really familiar with. And then as I started to get towards the tail end of, you know, soma was a massive project. Um, How many years was soma beginning to end? Uh, to acquire, to find the land took me two years to get approval, to plan, to design it with my brother and all that stuff. That was probably a year and a half, and then to build it was another year. So it's kind of like about, about four years. Whoa. And right at the tail end, when the budget was blown and time pressure, like we'd have retreats and stuff book in and, and um, 
it was all on my shoulders. And I'm looking at it thinking we need certification, we need an occupation certificate and all of this stuff and none of it looked like it was going to happen. And I was standing there looking at the, the site going, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And then um, I could feel like this is anxiety. <laughs> well, this, <laughs> this is what everyone feels. This is amazing. Now I know. And then uh, the funny thing about that was when I went home, I just noticed when my mind would shift to thinking about like the deadlines and this thing and the budgets and blah, 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 I'd feel the anxiety. And then I just tuned away from that thought and I'm like, my anxiety is gone. And then I would tune back in and I'm like, my anxiety is here. So, and I would tune in and away and I was just like, okay, well, the solution is I just don't think about it <laughs> because me thinking about those things isn't going to help the outcome. But you've got a well-oiled willpower pivot. <laughs> like, you're, you're, like you're able to um, pivot your awareness and send energy to whatever. Like mm. you've got that mechanism to do for years and years of cultivating yeah. it. And it kind of it was it resonated with that idea that what you think you become, you know, the great Buddhist Vedic expressions in every culture. And I could see like when I would transition and give energy to that thought, it would consume me and I would feel not myself. And then when I would just withdraw, then I would feel at peace again. And I think um, that was just illustrating one, the power of, you know, a thought, the power of consciousness you know, that mechanism of attachment, you know, when you connect your consciousness with something that's unsavory, you bathe in that, you know, it's like wearing that outfit. Um, and so how this relates to your initial question is, is it's kind of difficult to know where you're at a lot of the time because a lot of people have normalised feeling stressed and anxious, a lot of people have normalised being miserable, a lot of people have normalised feeling calm and centred and happy and, you know, having an undistracted mind. So I think that's been... You know, there's been a developmental process for me. Um, so I honestly don't know what I'm experiencing. <laughs> I know when I close my eyes, there's just this vast silence mm. that feels beautiful. I can disappear into it. Mm. But I also know that I'm here in the world and, and it's, you know, those two things seem to, um, to merge. And I know I have very, very sacred moments where I'm in a state of total oneness and then I have other states where I'm just totally consumed in the relative world and... Mm you know, having to pay bills, get my kids to school and go here and do that. Mm. But I think there's a constancy of calm that that is just my 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 greater sort of reality. Mm. So very centred, very calm, and my mind feels like it's it's clear and it's big and it's open. Wow. Yeah, and I feel like my intuition is incredibly strong. Right. Like I'll just know immediately something should be pursued or avoided, and that's how I... Built somewhere, it's how I run my whole life. Like, should I use this material, that material, hire that person, hire this person? I just get this immediate um, governance. Like, I get um, guided through pretty much the little micro and macro things. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's it's fascinating what you're saying and what you said about yoga under as well. Because I read, I only I only read that book. I have had it for years, but I only read it like a few months ago, and just. The classic. Oh, it's just divine. Like mm. you well up at parts where yeah. you just the sheer beauty of mm. his ex personal intimate experience with the divine. Yeah. And it, 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 I find, I found it so inspiring. Like just, just to see him talk the way he talked about it. And the, the documentary as well, Awake, which is another like yeah. nice little. Which is very different from the book, which is beautiful mm. because the book, you can never. I think, translate that into a film. Mm. 
but the um, the film they they intelligently weaved in all of these elements which weren't really um, portrayed in the book. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and the the end part when he when he decides to consciously drop his body and that his like those last that to me was like this that really hit me like it was like he just craved just to be at one with totality or mm. craved to be one with God divine and just like and and that was was like this it it, it kind of like spoke to the potency of which his devotion over the years was or did a sheer that was like longing i guess or how would you define that well i think he was he he'd established unity yeah long before he left his body and you know the absorption was absolute and complete and it just came time to to surrender his physical form yeah and you see that last photo that was taken of him and the divine is just shining through his eyes you look at it and the darshan coming from that is so strong so powerful and his body didn't decay um, yeah, after he, after he departed for like four weeks, wasn't it? Something. Yeah. It's like insane. Yeah. The, the more or the people that had his body said, I've never seen anything like this. And mm. it, yeah. What's going on there? <laughs> yeah. The energy still, still in his body. Yeah. You know, that, that powerful energy that he'd been cultivating through his whole life. You know, he'd energized his system. So it's like a battery. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, those cells were maintaining that energy long after the, the, the spirit had gone from it. Wow. Yeah. So he's like, you know, superconductor yeah. for, for, for consciousness and spirit and energy. And his body was just so, you know, profoundly charged that it didn't lose its energy in the same speed at which a normal human being loses its energy. So, um, so soma means consciousness in flow, right? Yeah, it's got a bunch of different meanings. Or like an, an, a cocktail of hallucinogens. Yes. Psychedelic, <laughs> a family of psychedelic plants um, that come from from India and particularly around the Himalayas, the other forests of the Himalayas. And it grows, um, it's, it's a very shy plant and it sort of um, it glows at night. Glows? Yeah, it glows. Wow. Yeah, it's very unique. So you um, say grows, I was like, oh, yeah, I can. I can <laughs> yeah, glows. it glows. It has a particular like aura to it and um, it's not easy to find. And for a long, long time, it's been the subject of myth until a couple of years ago, I was um, with an Ayurvedic physician, one of the most respected physicians in the world. And um, I asked him, I said, there's, in Ayurveda, there's so much reverence for plants and their ability to, to heal the, the physical body. And I said, is there any history or place or is there some truth to the idea that the yogis and rishis were using soma and these, you know, these plants to affect consciousness. And he said, absolutely. And he said, in fact, I've made a concoction myself and given it to some very advanced meditators. And they have these beyond experiences that they've never even t- touched before in all their years of meditating. And that was only a few years ago that he did, that he made that concoction. Um, but he said the plant after he um, found it, he, re- he was going to return to the forest and actually a bit of flood came and it was gone and that's, he's only ever seen the plant twice. Whoa. So it does exist, but it's very, very rare. Wow. Yeah. How insane. Mm. So and- that summer means body in Greek. Um, it relates to the full moon, um, to richness, juiciness, you know, the flow of consciousness and attention. And it's just a word I liked <laughs> <laughs> for a bunch of different reasons. 
What's your feeling about uh, how much on their journey? And I suppose is, I imagine it would be largely intuitive, um, but how much one takes upon uh, plant medicine for for uh, you know healing or accelerating their awareness states to which they obviously have to embed later, but versus regular practices. Yes. I, my personal um, idea about all this is that meditation needs to be a daily practice. You know, it needs, it forms the foundation. It raises consciousness. It, you know, it awakens Kundalini and it does so in a way which is, is stabilizing. If you take a plant medicine, for example, you go into these different states, but generally there's a return to the state you're in before the plants with lots of insights and things that come with it generally, but sometimes not, not at all. <laughs> um, so what I've witnessed is someone who's meditating is raising their baseline in a very, very consistent daily manner. Mm-hmm. And so the consciousness rises, it expands, becomes more and more stabilised in those realms Um but I do see a place for these plant medicines, funnily mm. enough. Mm. It's not something I generally talk about, mm. but it's becoming more and more of a conversation. Mm. Um, I think that these are master plants. They're highly intelligent beings. And when you, you interact with them in a particular way, with reverence, with proper preparation and integration thereafter, and you're held in that space by someone who's experienced and has, you know, a very... Um, acute you know understanding of their nature how to work with them etc so the set and setting is very important mm. um they can be profoundly healing mm. profoundly healing for for the body and for the mind for the emotions and, and for consciousness too but i think if that's all someone's doing it's it's insufficient mm. it's mm. not enough mm. yeah. but to marry them with a real you know uh solid personal spiritual practice there's immense value in that, I think. And my caveat would be that uh, they're not recreational. They're serious. Like these are powerful plants and people need to know what they're sort of interacting with and, and have the right, um, you know, the right intention and motivation for doing so. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, you can get your ass kicked <laughs> <laughs> or miss the point. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So true. And what, in terms of your, your tool set for, mm-hmm. um, for spiritual practices, um, what would, uh, I'm fascinated to know, like, what's entry level? What's like just cooking yourself? Cause I know we've talked before about yeah. like rounding turns the fire up. Yeah. And, um, could you, could you give us a bit of detail about like, I suppose your journey of like yeah. how you've increased your practices, decreased your practice and, and yeah. what effect that's had on you? Uh, yeah. I think initially what, what someone's practice is, is something that they, they visit twice a day, for example, like with Vedic meditation, it's something we do in the morning and something we do in the afternoon or evening. So there's this twice daily process of, of, you know, bathing in transcendence and going into this meditative state, which has wonderful positive effects. And the idea behind that model of morning, evening meditation is it starts to infuse the time in between with this quality of consciousness. And then as people become more, I guess, comfortable with that sort of routine, there's also a yearning that happens is actually I want to develop this further, I want to accelerate my spiritual development. So then we have advanced practices and techniques within our lineage that 
um, we can start adding. And rounding being one of them, and for those who don't know what that means, it's essentially a unification of yoga asana, pranayama breathing practices, meditation, and then resting and integrating. And it's this this very simple yet elegant and profound um, kind of marriage of these elements, which helps to really decompress the nervous system, get a lot of stress out, and, and it obviously elevates your consciousness. Mm. Um, and there are many, many other techniques too. We have eyes closed techniques and eyes open techniques. Um, and essentially anything is an invitation to spiritualize that. Like lovemaking, for example, for some people it can just be like a sport where they just, you know, get self gratification, receive their, their orgasm, and then it's like all about them and they're done. And for other people, it could be, okay, this has helps me to transcend my ego, to go into that state of pure energy and merge with someone else's energy and lose myself in that union. And the same thing could be experienced in totally different ways. Um, same thing with um, surfing, for example, which we were chatting about before we, you know, we came on air. Some people go out into the water to just get their waves at any cost, don't care, who I have to hassle or who I steal waves from as long as I get my quota mm. and screw everyone else. Mm -hmm. Other people might go out there like an Indigenous friend of mine and his thing is he goes out there to connect with Mother Nature and to feel the energy <clears throat> of the water mm. and really merge with that consciousness mm. because he finds that easy to do on the land but he finds in the water it's a bit more of a challenge because it's a different element. So he goes out there just to develop his his senses and develop his his connection. Um, and I remember one time I was surfing out what he goes and I often think surfers are like addicts because basically, you know, they want their fix. And sometimes you go to Indonesia where the waves are unbelievable and or even other parts of the world where waves are pumping and a surfer will get a phenomenal ride and then pull off and then just hightail it out to the, to the takeoff spot again to get another one. And you're like, but is that not enough? <laughs> How many of those waves do you need to get satisfied? And so we have this insatiable appetite. Mm. Um, you know, you can never have enough of that. So there's always this kind of battle, this, this um, craving for more and more. So recognising that, I, went, I stood on the, on the sand at Wadi Goes one day, which is a beautiful beach up here in Byron Bay, and I thought, you know what? I don't want anything. I just want to give. I just want to give my thanks and my gratitude, my love, my appreciation to you, Ocean, for all you've given me in my life, mm -hmm. you know, my, my dearest friend. And so I just paddled out there, not seeking any ways, but just in this state of total joy. <laughs> and then whilst I was out there, these dolphins started, started swimming around. They started jumping. And then this wave just came out of nowhere. And then these dolphins were surfing it, like launching out of the water. And the wave came right to me. There was no one else around. I went, I'm going to catch this. And then these dolphins were jumping either side of my board as I was surfing. And then they were swimming under my board and then jumping out of the water again, just riding away for ages. And I was just laughed my head off. I was, it was just the most ecstatic thing I'd ever felt. In the world. <laughs> I was like, okay, you're reciprocating. Yeah. And then I paddled back out and it happened again. Oh my God. And I was like, oh wow. You know, so everything can can be a practice yeah, to yeah. go to a higher plane, yeah. to go into, you know, unity, appreciation, love, gratitude, all of that. Like all life becomes a practice. And that's what you realise more and more, that you often don't need a formal thing. Like when you look at 
Vedic practices. And I, I sometimes see people in the spiritual sort of community up here around Australia and stuff, they mimic what's done in, in India. And so they'll start to wear the stuff and they'll change their names and they'll have little altars and little murtis and deities and do all these things every day. And and um, I think, like, someone sent me a video of them doing the other day. If anyone saw this, any Australian saw this, they think this person's certifiably mad. And I look at it and I think, I get it, but you're an Australian and this is your culture. Why are you, why are you doing that? Um, you, you know, as Krishnamurti said, he said, temples, mosques and churches become necessary when people look disconnected from nature. Mm. Whereas you look at the Indigenous Australians, they were staring at God all the time. Mm. You know, I think we forget that. Mm. You know, this, this, is the, this is beauty. You know, you, you, you read um, Spinoza's idea on God, you know. Einstein was asked, you know, you're, you're an incredible scientist, you know, what are your views on God? And he said Spinoza. And so we can read that quote later. It's beautiful. But Spinoza, who was a, um, he was a philosopher, I think he was Dutch, and his definition is exquisite. It is basically all about this, mm. this life, this realm. Mm. This is what, as human beings, we should, you know, be falling in love with, mm. not seeking somewhere else, not mm. seeking some other life, some other dimension. This is the dimension that is innately sacred. Mm. And I feel that's the ultimate practice. Like meditation is preparation for, for a merger to mm. take place. Mm. Um, it happens, it should be happening with eyes open. Mm. Mm. And, and as you just tune your consciousness, getting out of like the inner dialogue, the unity starts to be felt. You feel it more and more and more, just this undercurrent of beauty and sacredness all the time. But your communion, communion with what's around you, yeah. with, with your experience. Because every little, every little plant and tree and thing is alive. Like there's nothing that's not alive. Even concrete is alive. Yeah. Everything is energy. Everything has personality. Everything's emanating a vibration. And it's most people are so caught up in their own vibrational state of their minds that they're not able to really feel anything beyond that. Mm. So the biggest obstruction is the mind itself. Mm. And as we learn to transcend the mind and rehabilitate the mind and create coherence in the mind, then unity is felt in all moments, washing the dishes, mm. sitting on a toilet, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> there you are, right? Do you, with the, the book, The Holy Science, talks about the different, the universal religions and, or the universal religion of yoga, and, but then the categories that suit different types of archetypes or, you know, philosophers or romantics and stuff. Mm. I'm fascinated by that. Um, and what your lineage is fits into that. Mm. Um, and if so, if there's certain practices for certain types of minds, you know, like. Yeah. So from a yoga perspective, you have like different, I guess, paths towards that unified state of being. You have bhakti yoga, which is for people who are more devotional and heart-centered. And then you have raj yoga, which is more techniques and practices to elicit the awakening. And then you have um, jnana yoga, which is the path of, of knowledge and wisdom. People who are more intellectual, they're really going to find that supports them and their development. So everyone has a slightly different, we all have different blood types, we all have different personalities, and we all have a particular way that's more easy for us to meet the supreme. 
by traveling down that path. So within our lineage, they, they all unite, really. They're not, they're not separate. It's just there'll be a dominance of one. Like so for some bhaktas, you know, they, they're going to find that, you know, it's just the devotion to, to God or the divine, whatever it is, that's the way that they, you know, they, they find their peace and their love and, and their unity state. Mm. Whereas someone who's more, say, a karma yogi, it's through the path of action mm. and performing and doing and achieving, making some form of contribution that way. That's how they meet the divine. Mm. But they all unite. Like you can't just do one thing. Like try to be someone who renounces the world and goes just purely into silence. Like you can, you still got to get up and feed your body, or mm. you still got to relate, or you've still got love in your heart, or you've still got a craving for wisdom. So there's always going to be those elements combining, but there'll just be a dominance. And it's for people to like feel within themselves, what do I connect most with? Mm. Uh, and I have a lot of friends and they're bhaktas and I'll go to do their thing or meet their, whoever might be their, their guru or master or whoever it may be. And I have so much appreciation for it, but I also know this ain't my path. Mm. And so I, I honor their path but I know mine mine is different. Mm. And I think it takes a little bit of maturity to be able to discern mm. what what fits for you and um, you know what's resonant with your your inner being. Mm. So I'd say people just need to trust and go on that journey and just explore. Mm. You know what calls you and, and what feels right for you. Mm. Mm. I love that. And how do we actually feel the relevance of like the guru or the teacher student guru student relationship is given that you know like the lineage got passed down through that mechanism yeah. for neons yeah and um and i can un- i can understand the reverence um but yeah i'd, I'd be interested to know your personal yeah. journey with your teachers and mm. and how much you also um just see your direct line <laughs> um as your main guru or yeah so yeah, we have this this concept of a guru shisha parampara. Yeah. So it means teacher student yeah. or master disciple parampara, which means like t- traditional lineage. So you have param, which means supreme um, or beyond, and para, which means beyond absolute. So you have a disciple um, master relationship which stretches all the way to beyond the beyond. And so that's the role of the master is to help peel away layers for you to reach the beyond. And the knowledge comes from the beyond. And so you have to understand that these enlightened masters have distilled and refined and integrated these experiences and these practices Mm -hmm. for, as you said, like countless years, for tens of thousands of years, Mm -hmm. you know, at least 10,000 years. So from my personal experience, having the gift of a guru, I could say it's, it's essential. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can get there without it, for sure. And I have met people who have done so. Um, they've had a lot of grace. But I've also met a lot of people who, who have gotten on a path of self-development and had no master, and they're lost. Mm-hmm. Um, because what a master does lays a solid foundation of wisdom, of understanding and guidance and also calls you on what you can't see. Like when you look at Yogananda, 
Now, his master was really strict mm. on him. In some eyes, was was like too, you know, too strict. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was almost brutal. Um, but that was what was required, as Yogananda said, to crack that hard shell of my ego. Mm. And because you don't know you had that, yeah. and it's a, it's a teacher's role to help show you what you, you can't see within yourself or to take you to a place that you don't really know how to get to yet. Mm. Um, so, you know, and I've worked, I've worked with a number of people, you know, some are in the same world I am, you know, they're best-selling authors, et cetera, et cetera. But when I actually work intimately with them, there's so many holes. Mm. There's so many things which are lacking or haven't, um, been understood or experienced yet and I kind of I, I really feel for these people if I'm honest because it's so rare to find a teacher a guru mm. and I think the, the trap on the spiritual path is often people think I've made it and I don't need it anymore and I've had this multiple times with myself mm. where I've trained someone and you graduate them to teach but in my understanding I know you've got a long way to go Mm. That's okay. Um, we're, we're on your peer now, um, but you're still going to need me. But I don't say that. Mm. And I've graduated a number of people, and it's like spiritual ego takes over and goes, Gaz has taught me everything I, that he possibly could. I don't need him anymore, and I don't need anyone anymore. Um, I've arrived at that supreme state. And then I watch their journey, and it don't end well. Mm. So in my eyes... Tom is still my master. Mm. I learn from him all the time and we have such a strong connection mm. and it's, it's subtle in nature, but he's like the most dear human to me on the whole planet. You know, without him, I would not be sitting in this position I am now. And I even wrote to him and I said, so much yours, man. Mm. You know, without what you did for me, none of this would exist. Mm. And uh, that, that love, that relationship and also that... Um, just that guidance, that support that's ever present, like it's a, it's a powerful force. And one of the translation of guru, you know, there's the classic one, guru means darkness and ru means that which removes or dispels. So a guru dispels the darkness of ignorance. All of the ways in which, you know, you're out of alignment, the veils you put over your own sacred being, helps to reveal and remove that. Mm. But the other definition of a guru is weight. It means heaviness. Someone's guru is like, boom, it's very, very heavy. Mm. And you look at Surya, you know, the sun, it's, it's heavy. He's big. Mm. And it's got all the other planets in orbit of it. He's mm. powerful. The weight of the gravity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so a guru is like that, has an enormous amount of weight. So the weight of his Tom's presence in my life is massive. Mm. and will always be so. Mm. And unless you have a guru, you don't understand what that, what that means. And I think there's been a lot of um, misconceptions about, and a lot of people, I guess, who have been in those places but haven't been fully realised, who have violated the trust, and there's lots of, unfortunately, um, examples of, of that. Mm. And also you get spiritual communities that develop a lot where there may be an enlightened figurehead but as Tom often described to me, he said, those that hang around those places don't get it. 
That's oh, why yeah. they got to hang around. Become religion <laughs> cults, yeah. And then, you know, if you get it, you, you, you go on, you do your thing. Yeah, yeah. And that's why Tom's quite proud of what I've done, you know, because yeah. I've just gone, okay, cool, I'm going to actually go and do the work and get out there and, and make things happen. And whereas there are movements where a lot of people hang around and then you get, it can be a lot of unenlightened people and then it become ego-based, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So yeah. it can be a mess. Yeah. And then that reflects poorly on the master of that um, movement, but I think that's an unfair assessment, you know, because it's the it's the followers mm. that, that are the problem, and that's what Maharishi would often talk about: that the master experiences reality from one level, expresses it from there, and that's received from another level, which isn't of the same order; it's somewhere below, yeah. and then that person passes on their knowledge and understanding yeah, and it's received <laughs> and it starts getting diluted over yeah. time. So I think, and, you know, that's why a master is so important that yeah. it's, it's a long journey. It's a commitment. And in India to have a guru is like a serious thing. Mm. And that's why I'll say, but I'm no one's guru because I'm not willing to take on that responsibility. Mm. Um, even someone called me their, their guru the other day and I said, how, how am I your guru? If I was really your guru, we'd have a very, very different relationship mm. and it wouldn't be the one we're having right now. Mm. There would be total surrender and devotion and there's this idea, this is sort of classic understanding that total obedience, total surrender of oneself, one's destiny and one's ego at the feet of the master. I, wouldn't, I don't want that responsibility. <laughs> I'm ready to take that on. But that's what Yogananda did. Yeah. To his teachers to say, okay, I'm all yours. Is there a place for that in our Western society, you think? Or do you think it's. Yeah, there it's, is, but most culture. people aren't ready for it. Yeah. Because look at, you know, our teachers at school, we, we bag them and we hate school. Yeah. And, yeah. and we also, I think, have a bit of, um, how would you say, with. with um, Authority, like I don't like authority at all. <laughs> so, I have a real problem with it. <laughs> I, I don't like being told what to do from an institution that isn't holistic or yeah. enlightened. Yeah. So there's part of me which rallies against that side of thing. And I think culturally we're very suspicious about spirituality because, yeah. you know, let's look at the history of yeah. you know, modern spirituality. It's been a form of control and manipulation and stuff like that. And, but I think, you know, there is this beautiful, sacred, you know, relationship between a realized teacher and, and a student. And when that's there, it's beautiful. Mm. It's divine. Like it's, I think it's the most, one of the most highest forms of, of human love and relationship mm. because all our other relationships are conditional. Like someone say, oh, I love my husband, I love my wife or this or that. And I go, okay. When they have an affair, do you still love them? Mm-hmm. When they forget your birthday, do you still love them? Mm. Or when they come home a little bit later when they don't fulfill this need you have or do you still love them it's very conditional most most relationships whereas the guru student one isn't and you still you you and tom still feel like that's the level of your relationship absolutely yeah yeah there's on my side total love Mm. and on his too Mm. yeah and we never really we don't say that often Mm. you know but it's there it's unspoken it's precious yeah yeah, one of the beautiful things Tom said to me, he said, a true guru is, is one that makes you self-sufficient. Yeah. It doesn't create dependency, but actually makes you self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though I feel like I am self-sufficient, I still see like Tom plays such a huge role in my life. Mm-hmm. And he always will. <laughs> yeah. So always. lucky you got that. Yeah, I was very lucky.
it's quite unique. You know, I'd always craved, I watched um, Karate Kid when I was very, very young and something about that, I thought, wow, that's it. Like you need someone like a Miyagi mm. to really help develop you and to, to, you know, to hasten your progress and evolution mm. and um, give you those gifts of like all of that wisdom and years of like training that mm. they've had. Mm. And, because you could get there faster. Mm. And that's the guru. It's just an accelerator. If you got a good one. I was born into a, like a Christian church mm. that was um, quite secty. There's only a couple of hundred people in it. Um, it, it slowly dwindled over the years. But, and while there's fantastic teachings in it, like it was about personal union with God and focusing on your heart space and loving and giving, being selfless and all these many, many great traits yeah. um, and things that still shape me and I don't really, you know, I'm lucky to have had that upbringing. There was definitely an aspect of that it, it wasn't the whole thing. It wasn't totality. It wasn't, um, it was still conditional. It was still um, limited and, but, but with all the language of love. And so I, that was quite traumatising to leave and I still feel like I've got impress, impressions of finding it hard to um I suppose feel feel fully trusting of, of some. That's why the yogi like he's passed. <laughs> like yeah. he's someone that I was like, man, I would lay my hands at your feet, you know. Yeah. And because you because that's purity, I guess. Yeah. So I suppose there's and there's many different examples of that. But I suppose how would you speak to that? I suppose the the, the karmic path I've had with with spirituality in that sense, yeah. you know. It's, well, yeah, everyone, everyone has a, you know, a different karmic journey. It seems you you receive so many gems mm. and then you're just developing it and moving forward. Um, and, I, for example, Yogananda, I don't, he may have left his body, but that's all, like just the body's not locatable anymore. Mm. But if, when you read that book, it's so infused. It's true. With his heart, with his spirit, with, you know, him. It's, it lives through it. Yeah, it's like one of the most exquisite, like, offerings. Mm. Um, and so I feel like anyone who reads that book and like yourself who genuinely reads it and has that connection like then Yogananda is lively in you that was like one of the first spiritual texts I read and it set me on the journey same with Tom did the same thing for him mm. it's such a powerful work mm. um, and it's within the language it's in with the energy of the, of the, of the words and, and the stories and it's quite a phenomenal thing like it just suffuses you mm. in his experience mm. and you don't have to have like someone in the body. You can be, connect with a guru that's ancient mm. or that's more recent. You know, um, mm. the, these are energies and presences. Like, mm. isn't this what Christianity's doing? Mm. We've met Christ that's it's on the earth right it's now. It's true. Twelve, no. twelve people followed him. One, <laughs> one, one gave up on him. That's why saying the holy signs. <laughs> yeah. So it's like it, it's not essential for that person to be in the body for them to be able to teach you. Mm. and to guide you and, and help you evolve. It's just sometimes we need that. We need, we need a living, locatable presence. Mm. But nonetheless, Yogananda is still in this world, mm. definitely. And you can commune through. I, I find a good time to commune is after meditation, J just when I've finished meditation, mm. in that moment of, like, I suppose, coming out of it or the post where I'm yeah. stiller and... Um, that's why I generally like mm. have that communion. Is it? Yeah. Do you have any um, suggestions on 
yeah ways to do that well <laughs> or like you know good times to do it or where it's a bit true um clearer channeled yeah exactly so the meditation obviously that's an activity you know we're, we're we're engaging in a process and there there is there's intention to that and there's technique to that and then once you've been bathing in a meditative state you come out and then you have all the gifts and all the benefits of that which is this clear consciousness and then within that clear state you can connect with that which you desire to connect with and so that's the perfect time to do mm-hmm. it and you know there's something about withdrawal like when i need clarity or insight or just to come back to myself again where i go i go to church which is the ocean or mm. the beach or the or the hills the hinterland mm. i get in nature mm. that's the place where i really find like the energy is most pure and the, and the channel is most clear because mm. like think about a human being they're they're porous we have our own thoughts that you know affect the world and the environment creation and other people but we're also absorbing and look what the yogis and rishis and sages all they would do they would be in the hills like mm. far away from all the chaos yeah. and why does everyone come to byron you know? because there's an energy here you, you don't go from melbourne to like pitt street sydney it's like why would you do that mm. um so human beings naturally want to go to places where they reset their energies mm. and nature is in total harmony and balance the rhythms there are coherent and so naturally when you go to those places being porous they start to influence you like the land here that i spent two years looking for land and the moment i set foot on this place i could feel the power i was like <laughs> okay i've got my place <laughs> this is going to do 90 of the work yeah. just the energy and the, and the, the spirit of this <laughs> land so the, the the land is is something that i think human beings have um you know modern people have have severed their connection with and that's why you know connection to country the indigenous always talk about that mm-hmm. because the land is the great teacher it's the mother and it mm-hmm. connects and supports everything and as human beings our minds can get so caught up in you know drama or conflict or uncertainty etc and then that becomes the temple that we're in mm-hmm. and when you're in connected to to country or the natural world it's just so balancing mm-hmm. so harmonizing mm-hmm. it's so simple mm-hmm. So I feel like that has to be part of the spiritual practice. Mm. And then doing these highly intentional exercises in those places is very very powerful. Mm. Like I'm yet to set um an intention like whatever date it is now 7th of January or something. Most people sort of get about doing it the first day or something of the year and for me I, I'm not there yet because I've just moved into this new house. I've had my kids full time and I'm just starting to get into that space of okay what does creation want from me where am i at and what intentions am i going to you know send into the world so for me to genuinely do that i've got to go into nature and i've got to have a day or half a day or i'm just communing with the, the stillness of myself and the environment and then i'll be able to to meet whatever's rising up that wants to hmm. wants to come through so i'm i'm going to i'm going to take time once the sun comes out because it's a bit cloudy today but just go and get get in, go into the wild Mm-hmm. and just get into that rhythm and then I'll set my intentions. Mm-hmm. But nature man, I just got so much so much love for for how beautiful the, the world is. <laughs> and there's a lot of it up here we're very very fortunate. Mm. And it's it's not lost on me like when I look out and I'm looking at the forest in the morning it's pretty incredible. 
It's it's it is. Yeah. I completely hear you. Yeah. <laughs> I recently moved out of the city to, to down to the beach because of mm. Melbourne, Victoria. Because of that, it started just feeling so abrasive the mm. um, the energy in the city, mm. and I was just getting more and more sensitive to it. And then I left, and I just felt so happy. It's like <laughs> when you stare at trees and the ocean and the birds that what they reflect back to you is just is yeah. harmony and beauty and yeah. and if it's raining if it's sunny whatever it is yeah. it's just it's just it's all so gorgeous and irresistible mm. isn't it it becomes like a religious experience yeah it sounds very hippy dippy mm. but you know the natural world is beautiful mm. and, and and more so because uh, there's so much contrast like you live in a an apartment where you're staring at and you're looking at another apartment and you're hearing people above you next to you and you know, that, that idea of nature deficiency syndrome, like people just don't have enough fresh air and green and, you know, space anymore and it affects us as human beings. Yeah. You know, these poor people living like in, in major cities in China where they haven't seen the sky, they haven't seen stars, some people ever in their life. They don't know what stars look like. It's insane. Yeah, it's wild. It's, how – it's it, – <laughs> Where is this going? Like, because we, <laughs> because we are so divorced from nature. It's, it's tragic. It's sad. Like, I feel like I'm pretty highly tuned to unplugging from it, but still even it's a massive journey for me. So I mean, like people that are completely yeah, immersed in that way. And, and it, um, it might play into the thing as well, which we were talking about before of like addiction to external gratifications and because mm. that is rife i like even even in byron like you feel a lot of people that come in here feels that energy of like la like yeah. look at me kind of stuff and, uh, selfies and, selfies yeah, no, no, it's, it's sad and it's it's yeah it's it i find it, it i'm sensitive to it so it disrupts my it disrupts my um it's to talk about the yogis how they remove themselves from yeah. those kind of strong karmic push and full pull energies mm. Because they permeate me, like you said before, they, and and then they put me off course. Yeah. So, how does one? <laughs> I mean, a, it would be wonderful if there's some kind of like unified religion that made everyone that was the church was nature and like something that was clear that we somehow inseminated into the masses for people to uptake. But I mean, this completely unridiculous, and it's also like per country, like the indigenous folk would probably run it here, <laughs> um, and. But anyway, my mind runs rampant of all this stuff. <laughs> I think the main the main thing we want to do is become robust. You know, the more someone evolves, generally the more sensitive they become. Which you could look at that and go, that's a curse, because I'm gonna feel stuff. And when I'm gonna sit, I'm gonna feel everything, I'm gonna feel the abrasive nature or the caustic nature of, you know, people or traffic or whatever. Um, that can be true. But what also develops is this connection, you know, with this non-moving this very stable presence in you which transcends the, the flux of the world so the idea is to be grounded in your own inner being and know that that's immutable and that can't be tamed or conquered or ruined by or spoiled by anything of the world mm. so um you know it's kind of everyone has a different calling for some people it's like yogananda got called out of you know this the, the beautiful place he grew up and lived and loved to, he got thrown into New York. Yeah. And he's like, why is the divine brought me here? And he was needed there. Yeah. And same thing, Maharishi was taken out of the Himalayas, out of the silence of the Himalayas and, you know, was set on the world stage and was traveling around endlessly from nation to nation and 
spiritual regenerating animals. He just wanted to be in Utakashi, <laughs> up in the foothills, just doing his, his, you know, his simple life. Yeah. So, you know, we get taken where we need to be. Um, and, you know, I've done my stints in, you know, busy places and I still often travel to Sydney and work in that environment. And I think that's important. I don't want to lose touch with what most people are living and the realities and also want to be relevant. So um, the, the key thing is just to get more and more, like dig mind deeper into your own being because mm. what you're feeling is just some external energy but compared to your own inner being, it, mm. it's, it's weak mm. comparatively. Mm. And is that increase in meditation time from 30 minutes to 40 minutes every day or is that, what's the specific um, diagnosis long for me? <laughs> yeah, long meditations help. Um, but I don't want to, generally, you know, it, it's for a teacher to know a student intimately and go, okay, this is where you're at, this is what you need to do and then they'll create like, a, I guess, a prescription mm. of this is your practice, mm. begin to do this. Mm. Um, so there's ways to fortify oneself. Like you're a sensitive fella for sure. Mm. Um, you know, and the anxiety of the world will, will impact you and, and then your nervous system will mm. feel the effects of that and then it will ruin you. So <laughs> you need to do more grounding work, things mm. that create more stability and, you know, connecting to country would be huge for you mm, mm. because it's just the way it grounds your 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 own energies and it, it kind of sends a different frequency through your body. Mm, mm. Whereas cities are really good at like increasing anxiety and, you know, the intensity. A bit, a bit mind. Yeah. Is it, are they a bit mind-focused, do you think? Or like, because my mind, maybe it's just me, but I found like I thought. When we I say they're vata aggravating. You're right, yeah. So they're they're very busy, dynamic. Um, they're very exciting places. There's so many options. There's a lot of people. So things move particularly fast and at a high frequency and velocity. And so naturally that increases that energy in people. And so we say they're vata um, aggravating. And then you could say somewhere like the country, where someone's living far from people and they're just you know out on a you know on a property and there's a few cows grazing and stuff. It's a very slow energy. So that increases kapha. Mm -hmm. And people suffer more of boredom and depression out there than they do of stress and anxiety. Mm -hmm. So the environment definitely affects us and it's learning just to cultivate the opposite. So in a city, someone needs to put extra work into being grounded, mm -hmm. into being centred and calming themselves, slowing things down. Whereas when you sort of, you know, in a, in a place where not much happens, you got to do the opposite. You've got to learn to stimulate yourself and keep yourself excited and engaged and evolving and, mm -hmm. you know, on, on that sort of, on that train, mm -hmm. which is kind of easy to do nowadays. <laughs> you know, jump on the internet, you can do a degree or study with someone, you know, on the other side of the world or yeah. listen to Russell Brand like we were talking about yeah. before. Yeah. 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 So it's just learning where your energy is at yeah. and, and how do you enhance and how do you, Decrease what yeah. needs to be decreased. Yeah, mm. wonderful. It's yeah, it's such because the addiction thing is that main. It seems to be like a very popular narrative, like with the social dilemma, sh shone mm. a lot of light. And yeah. uh, I suppose as a filmmaker myself, like it made it made it described so brilliantly, gave us a vision of what is actually mm. going on, which yeah. we all knew was going on, but not so well detailed. Yeah, and I, we started the conversation talking about that phenomenon of normalisation. Mm. Yeah. We just tend to normalise our reality and think it's universal. Mm. You know, this is just how life should be. Like the other day, like my kids, 
I'm, I'm not anti-technology, but I'm pro-constructive use of technology. So my daughter, she's quite unique. She's, she's, she's about to turn 12, but she said, Dad, I don't want a phone. I know that's going to change. But she said, you know, I just think that's stupid and she'll, she'll minimise time she's on a laptop and stuff. And if she jumps on one, she'll be learning to draw or studying something. And Whereas my son's a little bit different. He loves the phone. Every time we turn around, he's like stolen it and he's on some game or whatever. But we went for a walk in, in um, Bangalore the other day and there were these seven kids all sitting outside this store and none of them were talking. I couldn't see any of their parents anywhere. They were all just on their phones and just tunnel vision, lost. Mm. And my daughter's like, Dad, look at that. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. And she goes, none of them are interacting with each other. I'm like, yeah, isn't that crazy? Mm. But that's just normal, right? Mm. Parents want to go to a cafe or whatever, they just farm their kids out to a phone and go, they're great, mm. now I can do my thing. Te- Farming's a very poignant word for it because it is farming mm. your attention. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so we've just normalised that there are these devices and we should just... You know, look at them all the time. Or people normalise, oh, I live in a city and everyone sort of be busy all the time. Like this is Australian thing. So, oh, hey, go, mate. Oh, I'm flat out. Oh, I'm so busy. And we say it with pride. Mm-hmm. Like it's a good thing to be really busy all the time because we've normalised. That means you're hardworking Aussie yeah. and you're making a contribution and you're a good fella and you know, you're <laughs> progressing and all of that. And, um, you know, so yeah. one of my friends um, is an interesting philosopher, um, when like unemployment's high, he's like, that's, that's great. Now people can enjoy life and don't have to do their shitty jobs that they hate. <laughs> so there's, you know, there's different ways to, yeah. to look at things. But I, we've, we've definitely normalised the world as we know it. Yes. And if we were able to somehow stretch ourselves back in time, 50 years, 100 years, mm. like even meditation on this continent, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, was real weird. Mm. It was a strange thing to do. And even exercise, mm. you know, mm. 30 years ago, like, what mm. the hell these two were doing running? Like, yeah. they got dogs chasing them. <laughs> so life keeps changing all the time. But as a generation who's, be, who's born to that, we never question culture. Yeah. And so I think it's very, very healthy. Like one of my favourite films that I've ever seen is La Belle Verte. It's a... Um, French film, the woman that directed Three Men and a Baby, mm. she um, had an epiphany one day and she cognised this film and it was basically people from another planet visiting the earth. You should watch it. Mm. it. It's hilarious. <laughs> and it exposes all of the things that we've long forgotten about or questions in our culture mm. about this is how we need to be as human beings. This mm. is like we, we, we've lost our value set. Mm. Um, I encourage people to watch that film. It's my favourite film of all time. It's brilliant. Yeah. And, like, she looks at a woman who, like, is doing makeup and she's like, what is this in your handbag and, and this thing and this thing? And it was, like, lipstick and makeup and this and that. She goes, and, and what is this for? And the woman's like, to make me look beautiful. And she's like, why do you need that? Because people like you. And then she looks at the so. Without this lipstick, people won't like you or love you. That's so strange. Yeah. <laughs> and even when a baby's born, like, she's, like uh, you know, a man's there to help deliver the baby. And, and, um, and she's, the, she, the baby didn't have papers. And so the woman's like, what do you mean the, the, the baby, the papers? What do you need papers for? Because it doesn't exist. 
with other papers. Mm-hmm. Like, but what do you mean doesn't exist? It's here. <laughs> yeah. It exists. Yeah. No, but there's no documentation. But I don't understand. So yeah, yeah. there's so much of that, yeah. like oh, one man. after the other. And it, it's, it's um, part of it's based in Australia too. Really? Yeah. And that connecting with the Indigenous Australians, yeah. Because how much do you relate to that when you, the more, when you step away from the exactly. culture more? You actually, I, I feel to my friends, my friends as I was doing it, like, I mean, I feel insane. Yes. And I feel like they look at me as insane, but I yes. feel like our society is insane. Yes. But then, then I'm the lunatic. Yes. <laughs> you know, but, and so it's, you got to be sent, you got to be uh, um, kind to yourself on that mm. shift as well, don't you? <laughs> exactly. And I describe that film very poorly, but essentially that's no, I totally get what idea. I'm doing, you know, when I'm working with someone or when I'm trying to get someone to have insights is become a different person, come from a different world visit this world, how are we living and conducting ourselves on a daily basis, how do we interact with each other, the natural environment, et cetera, et cetera, mm. because we don't, we don't even know what we're doing. Mm. You know, the fact that, you know, we just keep upcycling our phones all the time or we keep producing all this plastic or we keep having this garbage and none of it, you know, decomposes and mm. we think, oh, it's normal. Mm. Um, Yet from another perspective, that would be an insane thing to do. Mm. Like why why are humans living in this way when they have other options but there's not enough cultural shift? So I think it's a very healthy thing to question oneself, one's culture, to take these very sobering views on am I in alignment, where am I out of alignment, how do I correct that? So, you know, um, the world's beautiful though. Like the, what society's done, like, We've got so much to be proud of and thankful for and our achievements are, are, are massive and monumental. I don't think we're all bad. I think life is getting more, um, it's getting sweeter and richer. We're very privileged to be living where we are now. Mm. Like, look at you, you're a, you've got basically a production studio in, in, in a little bag. Mm-hmm. Amazing what we can do. Yeah, you know, the freedom right. we have, you know, That's you can pick up your phone and you can talk to anyone anywhere on the planet. Yeah. You can get any knowledge or information just by, you know, pressing a few buttons on a phone and yeah. it's amazing. And we just need to continue to do the work to, you know, improve and, and enrich those areas which need it. And yeah. sometimes our institutions are a bit lost for ideas or stubborn because, you know, certain people that benefit from things continuing the way they are. Yeah. There's upheaval and often people don't want to let go, which, you know, it makes sense. Yeah. You know, if something's profitable for you and yeah. nourishing you, why would you want it to change? You'll resist and fight as hard as you can to change yeah, that system. Yeah. 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 And that's that's happening on such a large scale, like even with this pandemic and, and the vaccination, the incumbents all from all that. Like um it's 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 hard to we don't trust the leaders because we know that the leaders engender is capitalism. So then it's mm-hmm. not like if you looked at like if you imagine Maharishi being in charge mm. of leadership, you I go, yeah, trust that guy. <laughs> like, do whatever you want. I won't even have to look. Yeah, you, yeah. you feel like that, but we mm. don't feel like that. But um, so this the unfortunate thing seems to be that there's going to be. But I imagine this is part of our evolution, like to for ignorance to just peak before it can shift. Maybe I don't know. I'd love to know your thoughts on that because it seems like it's going to continually the world's going to get madder and madder i've sense yet before there's a giant change what you know what we have is we have a, a melting pot we have ignorance and enlightenment coexisting and it's always been that way yeah the the demons and the gods have always danced together and so on this planet you have people who are 
highly evolved, very conscious, heart-centered, selfless. And then you have people who are really greedy and selfish and um, completely unaware of the impact that they're having. And so it's always been this way. And, you know, um, one of the great living masters of India, India, Shakti Narayan Yama, she was asked, so we want peace. How, how do we achieve peace? Because you know, we all want that. And her response was, no, we don't. It's so true. Of course we do. We want peace. And she said, we don't. No, you don't. You don't want peace. And and the person's curious, like, why not? And she said, the only time when there'll be peace is when there's Mahapralaya, which basically means when all the oceans swell and cover the earth. That's the only time when the earth will know peace because it's not the nature of humanity. Yeah to be living this conflict-free life. Yeah. And because you have old souls and new souls dwelling together on the same planet, so there's always going to be a disparity in, in values, in actions, in you know, the nature of institutions and whatnot, yeah. because there's always this, this dance, you know, this, uh, this back and forth between those, those differing elements. Yeah. And I think the beauty is learning to coexist in all that, and like the masters teach, just seeing the sacred in all its different forms mm. because even a demon is a god just covered, mm. you know, mm. playing the role mm. of some some destructive entity. Mm. But in the essence, all things are beautiful and divine. So mm. spiritual practice is really being able to to penetrate and see see that there's goodness and there's beauty in absolutely everything and everything has a place in, in this world, in, in this creation that we see with our five senses <laughs> and what we think we become. So it helps to think that way, mm. even if it's a stretch for some people. Mm. You know, you've got to ask, what do I want to feel? Do I want to feel joy? Do I want to feel nourished by, by my daily existence? Or do I want to feel like I'm fighting everything and, mm. you know, and lose faith and trust that there is a divine plan? Mm. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, progress can't be stopped. As Gandhi always said, good always triumphs in the end. Mm-hmm. You know, and change will always come. There's resistance to change, but it's inevitable. The world's just evolving very, very quickly. And I, I personally feel there's more enlightenment on the planet right now than there has been in, in any other century prior. Mm. Yeah, there's, you, just, you just look, when I grew up, I had no idea. Like my kids know all about health and nutrition. I grew up not knowing there was such a thing. Mm. I thought, oh, you're hungry? Just eat something. You're not hungry anymore, and that's that's fine. I was so sick as a kid. Now I look back and think, no wonder. Mm. Whereas the, the understanding of nutrition and health, um, the understanding of, of mind now and emotion and what consciousness is and even the idea of meditation. When I first learned, you know, 22 years ago, I had to, like, hide it from my friends. Mm. My brother learned a year before me. He hid it from his whole family because, oh, they're going to think I'm an idiot. Well, it's very different now. Mm. It's just like it's an aspirational thing so true. to to learn the art of how to transcend and to get your mind in order and to foster a deeper connection with everything in the world. And you know, it's it's such a different world. You know, it's it's beautiful. And I think the more you evolve, the more you see, oh, we're missing these things, or this needs to be fixed, or whatever. And I think we just have to surrender that and mm. realize that no, humanity's doing all right. Mm. Yeah, that's wonderful. It, it reminds me of um, what I started doing recently after meditation, 
which made it just came to me after I think reading one of the, I think it was Yoga Nance's book mm. that talked about um, it, it brings me immense, immense amount of peace inside myself when you have mm. that perspective that you just said, which is um, I think it was just like I am Brahman experiencing Layla. Yeah. And uh, the divine play of things. Mm. I'm totality or I'm not, I'm not actually totality, but you know, like I'm of totality. Yeah. Um, how is that, is that, how, is that kind of how you feel about it or is that different? Yeah. We live in a reality. We live in a dimension of consciousness, you know, and what we experience with our five senses and through, you know, this bodily organism and through this mind is a fraction of the ultimate reality. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, as you start to appreciate that, you see the. it's not that you disregard the value of this. I think it has more value. It takes on more value because creation in all of its, you know, infinite power has manifested jazz and gaz mm. and for us to have this unique human experience. Mm. And we don't want to, like, dismiss that. We want to, mm. like, go into total reverence for this. Mm. Just, I'm universal consciousness looking through this little window of this personality, like, wow, it's pretty special. But also not getting overly identified just with that little window. Yes. Because as we know in the Vedic there's this idea of Maya, you know, this create, you know, energy manifests in a particular way and gives you this five sense reality. But as you do plant medicines, as you start transcending, going deeper into meditation, you realize that's just the surface. That's mm. just one layer. Mm. That's one aspect of, of, of the universe. Mm. And realize there's these other deeper dimensions which are more reflective of our true nature. Mm. And maybe, you know, human beings need to um, be decimated, let the earth recover, um, and another species will take over. Uh, but our souls will continue to experience reality just on in a different plane or a different dimension. So consciousness has this, you know, it exists beyond the body essentially mm. and beyond this world. Mm. And so it's a, it's a healthy thing to know that you know you are this you you are the totality, but appearing and experiencing through the instrumentality of this little male nervous system. And so I think it, it, that helps us to foster non-attachment, mm. and then that gives us calm, it gives us freedom, it gives us liberation mm. from suffering, mm. when we know that there's more. It's beautiful when you when the mechanics of the soul mm -hmm. in the Vedic worldview. Um, can you can you elaborate or explain that? Like in terms of where it all came from, the, the and then yeah. lots of and then but will we will the individual souls? Yeah, well, how are they just a window of or are they actual? Yeah, I don't know what I'm trying to ask. I know what you're trying to say. <laughs> Thank you. Yogananda's has <laughs> come in a little bit um, to our conversation today, which is beautiful. Um, so there's this idea of. You know, there's, there's absolute being, there's, there's pure infinite spirit, consciousness, source. There's so many different names for it. Brahman, totality, the absolute. So the Vedic view is that there's this, this one whole being. There's this vastness, this infinite, eternal, timeless field or energy. And so that oneness had the idea ekoham basusyam, which is I am one. May I manifest many. May I become many. May the oneness move into many different structures and forms and experience the world through those forms. 
and through the process of evolution, return to the oneness once again. And so we have little microbes and bacteria and viruses and we have bugs and insects and trees and plants and whales and dolphins and turtles and all these different, you know, millions and millions of different species. And then human beings have this very refined nervous system which can be developed to such a degree that allows that oneness to be experienced and the mind to be overcome with unity. And so the oneness can be experienced within the structure of a human body or human being. And that's why being acquiring a human body is a very precious thing. And Gurudev Maharishi's master said, if you receive a body and you don't use it to realize God, to realize that oneness, you've basically um, sold gold for the price of spinach. You said like you've squandered a very, very unique opportunity. Mm. So the, the difference between the Brahman, the totality of that oneness and the soul is as Yogananda would describe it, he said the spirit is the soul's soul. So you have the one that then the oneness starts to manifest and form a, the ocean forms a wave. And that wave is the soul. But the soul is not separate from spirit. It's a manifestation or it's a wave on the ocean because you can't say, look at that wave, well, and then look at the ocean. They're part of the one thing, but they appear very differently. Mm. Even me as a surfer, I would say, I've got some wave. They didn't say, I've got some ocean out there. (laughs) But the truth is, yeah, yeah, I'm an idiot. (laughs) I was just with the wave. But, you know, it's more convenient to describe it as a wave. So we would say, you know, you're a soul and I'm a soul, and that's true. But there's a deeper truth is that we share the same spirit. Yeah. You know, we are the same being, and that's what that Brahman means, that aham brahmasmi, I am am totality. And for a human being to arrive at just being able to accept that is a challenge, Mm -hmm. and then to experience it is another challenge too, Mm -hmm. to feel like total connectedness and oneness. Mm -hmm. Um, And from Vedic view, there's a development of consciousness from you know, you have the dullness of deep sleep and then you have dream and then you have the waking state. So you have an increase in consciousness and then you have uh, Turiya, the fourth state of consciousness, that transcendental state where um, the mind is in the beyond um, but not fully established in it. And then you have the fifth state, Turiya or cosmic consciousness, which is where the mind's established in that infinite mm. even whilst it's interacting in the world. Mm. And then you have a sixth state where, you know, that celestial consciousness or God consciousness where your sensory environment is very different now. Mm-hmm. The world isn't what it used to be in ordinary consciousness. It's alive. It's mm-hmm. intelligent. It's radiant. Mm-hmm. Um, there's personality everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then the most advanced state would be unity consciousness or Brahman consciousness mm-hmm. where there's total merger of self and other is indistinguishable. Mm-hmm. So the Vedic view is... If that realization happens, like with Yogananda, there is really no Yogananda anymore. Mm. Gone. Mm-hmm. Everything is, is Yogananda. Mm-hmm. Everything is one. Mm. And, you know, Yogananda means, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda means supreme swan. Param means supreme and Hansa is a swan. That's a symbol of the divine unity, white, purity, and then yoga, union, and Ananda bliss. Mm. So, you know, the spiritual names, they 
they kind of give you an indication of, you know, the development of someone. But supreme bliss, divine union, he went into that completely. Mm. And so the body's gone, but the consciousness is is everywhere. It's fully developed. Mm. And so he didn't really go anywhere. Mm. He didn't leave. Mm. How can you leave when you're everything and you're mm. connected with the all and mm. all dimensions? Um, so the, if someone drops their body with not having that realisation, then that individual wave moves to a different realm and continues to experience through that soul, through that structure, and then continues to evolve life after life, goes from different world to world to world, and it's um, that journey is determined by karma, according to Vedic view. The energy of um, transcend, ultimately transcending your karma or, or resolving it? Yeah, it's um, you evolve to a point where that karma impacts your body but not your consciousness anymore. Right. And you can't escape karma. You can minimise it and you can dilute it. You can transcend the binding influence of it, but karma means action which binds you. You know, if you do something evil to someone, that's karma, and then that energy is going to meet you at some point in time. Yeah. And there's nothing we can do mm. um, about that except have grace, but you can perform new actions which can then minimise the impact of that karmic wave that's going to, right. to meet you. Right. And there's a storehouse, you know, there's so much what we call parabda karma, you know, it's, it's a storehouse of karma. Of what we've done in previous lifetimes. Yeah, exactly. Now. Yeah, exactly. There's different types. There's, and I may get the, the, the sequence wrong, but parabda karma, sanchita karma, agama karma and kriya mani karma. <laughs> there's four different types. So the first one, might be Prabhda or Sanchita, I'm getting confused. Um, mm. Someone, some scholar will pick me up on this. Mm-hmm. But let's just say it's um, Prabhda Karma. It means like the storehouse, the inventory, and that karma is fixed. Mm. And that's a waiting. Mm. It's, it's not yet been received. And then you have the um, Sanchita Karma, which is the ripe fruit karma. That's um, what meets you in this life. The mm. stuff that's happening, like, why is this happening to me? Mm. That's your Sanchita Karma. And then you have the Agarma karma, that's the actions that you do now that are going to create future karma. And then you have um, Kriya Mani karma, which is action that doesn't have any binding effects at all. Right. It leaves no influence, no, no, no negative impact. There's no binding agent to it. Is that it's in alignment with natural law. Right. Yeah. Is that also described as Kriya? When you- Kriya, yeah, can be. Kriya is some, it's slightly different language, but yeah, right. Kriya is, um, are more evolutionary activities. Right. Yeah. So, so the, the Often the, spiritual practices. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, feel, I, I, I can't steal your time all day, so <laughs> I'm, I'm aware we're on the time. But, um, yeah, thank you for your precious bounding of information and knowledge and data, the yeah, downloaded yeah, data. It's, I massively, um, mm. I feel like <clears throat> for people listening, I know for me it just illuminated so many things. I mean, it, it, it's it's perfect for me. It's selfishly because I like I get to ask the questions, but I know that people listening will have a similar effect because they do with other episodes. And um, yeah, just thank you, thank you for thanks for having me on the show. Time. Appreciate it, man. <laughs>